Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Dr. Brian Keating. Dr. Keating is a Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences in the Department of Physics at the University of California, San Diego. He is a public speaker, inventor, and an expert in the study of the universe's oldest light, the cosmic microwave background, using it to learn about the origin and evolution of the universe. Keating is a writer and podcaster and the best-selling author of one of Amazon's editors' best nonfiction books of all time, Losing the Nobel Prize. His talks with Ben Shapiro, Lex Friedman, Dennis Prager, Eric Weinstein, and Neil deGrasse Tyson are available on all major platforms. Dr. Keating's enthusiasm for science and Judaism is something very inspirational, and we're just so honored and privileged to be able to speak to him, so we hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, Dr. Keating. Okay, got it. Thank you, Dr. Keating, for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. For those who are listening, uh, Dr. Keating has appeared on Ben Shapiro, PragerU, many other shows, uh, Lex Friedman, one of my favorite podcasts. So without further ado, we're going to start with the first question. In your book, Losing the Nobel Prize, a prize which you describe as a golden idol, is a memoir of your journey, not just on a scientific level, but on a personal level. In one of your talks, you said searching for God was in a way searching for your father. Can you expand on this? Yeah, so I had kind of an interesting, uh, maybe tortured, uh, not literally tortured, but a very unusual background upbringing that we'll get to involving detours uh, through almost all the major world religions, including, uh, you know, going to Zoroastrianism. No, I didn't do Zoroastrianism. (laughs) Um, Mainly just uh, Christianity and Judaism and atheism. Uh, But I think the, the real kind of novelty hiddish can i use hebrew words you guys understand any hebrew sure. can I, you know do i divine from like those little hats on your head that you understand uh-huh. hebrew? <laughs> so the hiddush the the novelty the kind of insight that i had was that because i grew up without a father and because hashem because god is kind of viewed as a king slash father uh uh the antipathy that i felt from the fact that my father had actually abandoned me and gave me up for adoption along with my older brother kevin that um was maybe being put on God as well as um, literally on my father, my biological father. And so I think it, it presented a block. And I always say like this, the, the uh, I almost said the late, not great Richard Dawkins, but he should live and be well. But Richard Dawkins always says things like, um, there's no such thing as a Christian child or a, a Jewish child. That's all nonsense because the you know, child doesn't know what he or she is choosing. Uh, let's ignore that. But um but I think it is true that you can have an atheist kid, a baby from birth, because if your father, if your mother actively kind of proclaims that there is no God, that God does not exist, that God is a fairy tale, no matter what you know religion they used to be a part of or maybe never were a part of, it's almost impossible for a kid to turn around from a staunch militant atheist background, as my friend and colleague uh, Lawrence Krauss mm-hmm. declares himself to be. Uh, it's almost impossible to go from that and even be open to the notion that a God could exist, not that it does or doesn't, but just that the scientific possibility could be admissible. So for those reasons, I think growing up with a, with a very difficult relationship with my biological father, including being abandoned, left for adoption, put up for adoption, and then um, not being in touch with him for, for so many years, 
except almost, uh, you know, surreptitiously perhaps in that I knew he was a scientist. I knew he accomplished great things in mathematics, but I never knew specifically, you know, what, what he was like as a person. I, I didn't actually know what he looked like uh, for 15 years of my life from age seven to age 22 when we did reunite. And I think the reunification allowed me to then kind of reapproach the pursuit of God from a perspective of somebody who at least had some sort of a biological father um, later in life, not as a kid, not as a seven-year-old when I had been abandoned. So I think I came to it with a more mature perspective. In between then, I had become Catholic, then atheist, and then got back to my Judaic roots when I reconnected with my father later in life. Awesome. And so, you know, as you were talking about, you you were raised Catholic by your stepfather. Um, you even, uh, I believe, spent a year as an altar boy. Um, and in one, one interview I listened to, um, you described yourself as a Baal Teshuvah. Um, and you mentioned how Judaism uh, talks about how to act, not so much about what to believe, more about deed than creed. Um, I'm just curious, how much has uh, Judaism shaped who you are? Um, what made you decide to return uh, to your roots after being an atheist? Um, and how do you or do you reconcile uh, the tension between religion uh, and your work as a scientist? Yeah, so a lot of questions there. Uh, it's good to see. I'm not the only podcast host who asks, you know, eight part <laughs> questions. And I, I always get you know, kind of complained about for doing that. But I love it. I love it. So thank you. Um, <clears throat> so the the kind of first part of your question, how did I come, you know, from these different perspectives to then come back and become a Balchuva, which literally means master of return, uh, repentant, penitent. I feel like uh, that was um, almost natural for me in a sense. The actual inciting incident, the event, if you will, that made me become more connected to my my Jewish roots again later in life as a 29-year-old was actually September 11, 2001. Uh, because I had realized when that happened that Judaism and in particular Israel were at the center of a massive conflict between forces that were dominating the world. And I realized I knew a tremendous amount about Islam because you almost couldn't know a lot about Islam at that period of time and got kind of contradictory messages of what, what is it? What does it revolve around? What are its precepts? Uh, and then I had been, as you say, a Catholic altar boy when I was supposed to be taking bar mitzvah lessons at age 12. I was actually working uh, in uh, living in Dobbs Ferry, New York and um, and practicing Catholicism. And, and that included serving as an altar boy. I've been confirmed and baptized years before that. And I want to go all the way. And at age 12, that sounded like a great thing, going all the way, meaning becoming a priest. And, and in, I never had any negative experiences, God forbid, anything to do with all the scandals that the Catholic Church has uh, been involved with. I didn't have any of that. However, so it was only a uniformly good experience. And because my mother married a, a, a Goy, a non-Jew, uh, that's my stepfather, Ray, their, her family kind of not disowned her, but but kind of withdrawn and separated a lot. It was very painful for her family, which are Jews. And, um, and my biological father, I should say, is also Jewish or was Jewish, he passed away, unfortunately, uh, about 14 years ago. But the upshot is that I realized I knew more about Christianity and Catholicism. I knew about atheism because I'd been an atheist. I knew about Islam, but I didn't know anything about Judaism. And as a, you know, when I was studying for my bar mitzvah at age 12, uh, when I should have been studying for my bar mitzvah, rather than I was an altar boy, 
uh, I realized a couple of things. One, that, you know, the Catholic Church I had looked upon and the Christian church, you know, Christianity in general, as kind of being derivative of Judaism, that it had a New Testament, well, Jews had an Old Testament. Well, I realized, well, you know, there's like New Coke or, you know, there's like some new thing or like uh, the Empire Strikes Back, you know, they, they kind of did even better than Star Wars. And so my feeling was that as a kid, that anything that came around later would be new and improved. Mm-hmm. It would be better. They would have found the lacunae, the gaps, the flaws, the foibles, the problems, the inaccuracies and inconsistencies in the Torah. I didn't know it was called the Torah, but I figured it's, you know, they got to come around as a scientist, just thinking logically, if there are flaws, they must have updated them, corrected them and improved upon Judaism. That's what I thought. And then um, when I became aware that to become, you know, I only like to do things all the way. I like to do things with what do you call it? Zerizus, uh, mm. very, very passionate. Um, uh, uh, you know, that's one of my good, good traits. So I want to go all the way. Like as a scientist, I want to be a professor. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a pilot. I want to do all these things. In Catholicism, I wanted to go all the way, which meant being a, a being a priest. Now at age twelve, that was reasonable. I felt like I could do that. By age thirteen. As you may remember, something starts to happen and you start to think about, well, what would be the implication if I went all uh-huh. the way in Catholicism? I'd have to be a priest, be celibate, take a vow of, of, of celibacy. And as a 13-year-old you know, kind of boy, that didn't seem palatable to me. Uh-huh. On the other hand, I also felt at the same time uh, that I wanted to you know, continue to investigate my love of science. And those two things combined with uh, the, the knowledge or the supposition that Christianity was new and improved Judaism with my knowledge about science, which was coming along at the exact same time. I realized that the church had actually treated my favorite scientist of all time, still to this day, Galileo. They treated him abhorrently. And I couldn't reconcile a religion that by that time in the mid 1980s, late 1980s, had never forgiven Galileo for saying the truth that the earth goes around the sun and not the other way around. And that combined with the fact that, so that allowed me to sort of start to second guess and reject Catholicism. At the same time, if you can reject, you know, the logical law of logic, if, you know, modus tollens, if A, then B, and A, then B. Uh, so I felt like, well, if, if you know, Christianity comes after Judaism and there's a problem with Christianity, then all call the home air. Uh, there must be a problem with Judaism. So now I can just reject everything and I don't have to do anything. That's when I became an atheist. So those kind of things in the formative time of my life, becoming a scientist, uh, you know, kind of feeling that there are aspects, problems with uh, Catholicism due to their um, uh, treatment of my hero, Galileo, and feeling like that Judaism must have, you know, been improved upon and I could reject it now as well, meant that by the time I hit my, you know, 20s in college and, and late teens and was in college, I didn't have any religion to speak of. And it was only after September 11th when I realized that the Judaism was a mystery to me. I couldn't read Hebrew. I couldn't speak at Hebrew. Never gone to uh, gone to a real. Actually, I don't think I ever went to a temple ever in my life up until about age 28 or something like that. Certainly not an Orthodox uh, synagogue. And so I think it's uh, it was it was fresh to me it was and i'm i'm only comparing myself to albert einstein because we're identical in every single way brilliant (laughs) but einstein said a very interesting thing guys he said as a kid i wasn't curious i never asked my my tati you know uh, albert senior i never asked daddy what would happen if you traveled at the speed of light and looked at yourself in the mirror 
And he said, that was a good thing. Because if I asked my dad back in, in uh, 1879, when he was five years old, if I asked daddy, what, what happens when I travel at the speed of light? He would have said, you know, something that was known to be wrong because it would only be 20 years later when Albert himself came up with it at age 25 and his miracle year. What happens when you travel at the speed of light is part of the theory of relativity. Similarly, and this is the only way I compare myself to Einstein, I also didn't ask questions about religion until I was in my mid to late 20s. And because of that, like Albert said, I approached it with the seriousness that no five-year-old could even muster. And with me, it was the same thing. I could ask questions about Judaism from the perspective of a professional PhD scientist, and but also revel in the behavioral aspects of it. I think Ben asked me that in the beginning, that I saw as unique to Judaism, whereas my faith in Christianity was only that, was only amuna, was only faith-based or, or, you know, kind of acceptance-based. There was no demands put on me. I had to wear like this robe or something as an altar boy, but, you know, people would come and to, uh, to church and flip-flops and heal, you know, whatever. But I never felt like that was somewhere that I belonged until I did go to, uh, you know, an Orthodox synagogue as a 20 year old and start to learn and learn Hebrew and learn, read the Torah and, um, and took it from there. And ever since then, which is, you know, 22 years, almost now 21 years, I, you know, have been pursuing Judaism and learning and, and, um, you know, making my unique kind of interpretation of, of what it can teach me by way of what I actually practice. Very fascinating. And, you know, um, as somebody who's obviously a proud Jew myself and and somebody who learns Torah, I are the way we were always taught was to ask questions and to be curious. And we don't have the I'm sure there are sects who who are more like dogmatic, but generally speaking, we Jews, we look at the Torah as, you know, something that we're open to evolution, for example, or the age of the universe being much older. We're not we're not creationists or or literalists like like the Christians. There's an openness to to Torah study, um, so that I really appreciate that you're approaching it that way. Um, it's really an amazing thing. Um, so I want to actually jump to another question. Um, I'm not a scientist, so forgive my ignorance, but it seems like scientists today are reverting to the eternal universe model, uh, to maybe to avoid the implications of the Big Bang via the multiverse theory. So, if that's the case, why do atheist scientists insist that? If God were to exist, something must have created him, yet the same logic doesn't apply to the universe. The, the universe itself doesn't need to have a have a creator. It, it just is. It always was, right? So it seems like science can also be, in a way, dogmatic religion. Do you agree with oh, that? absolutely. Yeah. No, there's, there's no one as re religious as he who claims he doesn't have a religion, because that becomes identification. In fact, that's why most people nowadays will call themselves maybe agnostic, which which means not knowable rather than atheist, which means non-existent. You know, God does not exist because a good scientist realized that's not tenable. You can't prove uh, that God does or does not exist, right? There's, I mean, we wouldn't get any credit. That's why it's called a Muna, by the way, right? I mean, it's faith. I don't have a Muna in gravitational fields, right? I, I know they exist. I have evidence for them. I don't have a Muna that two plus two equals four. I have a mathematical logical proof that, Two plus, and actually, it's three hundred pages thick. It's it's not some trivial thing, but you follow certain laws, you accord by this logic, and you'll get this result. The issue with the multiverse is manyfold, no pun intended. It arose from a uh, a desire to kind of answer what's called the weak anthropic principle, 
which is the notion that we exist in a universe that is otherwise pretty inhospitable. It's very unlikely to find the existence of living organisms, you know, just to have a handful of different things that had to happen. We'd have to live on a rocky planet. We'd have to have water. That water would have to not cover the entire planet. Uh, you know, we don't see dolphins making iPhones, right? So even though you could have life, you could have intelligent life, but you couldn't have technological life. And that's one of the sine qua nons of what humans are. We communicate. And in fact, the word, you know, for human in uh, in Latin, where it comes from, homo sapien, sapien means wisdom. Um, scientia, science means knowledge. And as we know, Torah means wisdom. Uh, it doesn't mean knowledge, right? So there's, there, I always like the fact that, you know, Jews have as many names for like knowledge and wisdom and, and insight and, uh, and intuition as the Eskimos purportedly have for snow, right? So it's, it's integral to who we are. And same with love, right? I mean, we have different loves and we have different words for it. Uh, hesed, kindness, all this different, right? So it's a beautiful kind of descriptive thing. What the scientists will say though, is even though it's not knowable to know if God exists, and I, a good scientist will say, I can't prove that God doesn't exist, um, they will act like God doesn't exist. So I had this conversation with a very famous scientist who's unfortunately has passed away, Freeman Dyson. Yeah. He was at the Institute for Advanced Study for many, many years in Princeton, one of the most brilliant people who ever lived. He was actually the first guest on my podcast, Into the Impossible where I've had, as you mentioned, Ben Shapiro, Rabbi David Wolpe, uh, many Christian thinkers. In fact, today in my episode, we're recording this in early to mid-January 23, uh, the, the interview that I'm hosting on my channel today is with a professor in Western Sydney, Australia, Luke Barnes, who is a who grew up as a young earth creationist. His father was a pastor in a Christian church that believed the earth is literally 5,000 years old. Um, which, you know, be a fascinating thing, by the way, to talk about how you can view that as a scientist. I don't, I, I think technically it's very interesting. I don't know if it's appropriate for all audiences in this kind of capacity. But so Freeman Dyson would say things to me like, I'm an agnostic. And I'd say, Freeman, that's very interesting. What if there are aliens and they look down on earth and they see you, Freeman? And he was a lovely man, British man. Uh, it was almost 94, I think, when he passed away uh, three years ago. And I said, it's a Sunday afternoon. And they see you, you know, sitting at home, you know, with uh, with a book and, uh, you know, and drinking your, your British, you know, English breakfast tea. How would they know that you're agnostic, not atheist, when they look next door at your countryman, Richard Dawkins, and they say, hmm, these two guys don't go to the same church, right? They're both not going to the same church. In other words, their behaviors are identical, hmm. even though Freeman would say he's agnostic and Richard Dawkins would say he's an atheist. So that brings us to like, what is the Torah in, in terms of like, how does that differentiate itself from other religions and from other um, uh, from other practices? In other words, can you really be an agnostic Jew? Um, I know a lot of cultural Jews. I know a lot of reform, conservative, orthodox, but can you be an agnostic Jew? And, and the question I think is appropriate for a scientist, because as I said, we don't have proof that God exists. Just like we don't have proof and can never construct proof that God doesn't exist. So what I see as my mission for me personally and to those that you know resonate with this message is that I look as a scientist for clues and the clues can point the direction to basing, basing your evidence and making it more and more sturdy, but never knowing that you'll never be able to prove like two plus two equals four, you'll never get to that level of credulity. But I ask questions about it. And I look at it not as a science book. And I think that's very important. 
when you look at, and I said this to Ben Shapiro when I was on his uh, Sunday special, uh, when you look at a book, the book, you know, the title should tell you something about it. I have a, I have a segment of my uh, podcast now called Judging Books by Their Covers. And you're supposed to never do that. But you, what else do you have to go on? You know, you're like picking up this book. It's in the bookstore. You've got, you've got it here. Everybody should buy, you know, multiple copies of this. Um, this is my second book. This is my first book. Like it should have something to do with the title and the cover. And, um, but we always say, oh, don't judge a book by a cover. No, you should. So let's look at the Torah, right? So you pick up the Torah. I should, God forbid, Hasfashalam. I'm not comparing my book to the Torah. Pick up the Torah. <laughs> Torah. Do you guys know how many verses are in the Torah? I don't even know. How many Pesukim are in the Torah? No idea. Rough <laughs> approximation. 35,000 verses. About. Okay. You know how many verses are in Burish, uh, Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 8 or something like that? It's about 35. Yeah. It's about 35. So that means one out of every 1,000 pages in the whole Torah <laughs> and the whole uh, all the all the Pesukim is about creation, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, right? So now that you pick up this book and it says on it, you know, it says um, history of the NBA and the, and it's only about a thousand pages long. And there's one page about Michael Jordan and LeBron James and, and uh, KD. And I don't know where you guys are at, but, but all those great basketball. And then the other 999 pages about the, like that one Jewish guy who like, um, I think Amari Stoudemire converted to Jew. Anyway, it's, this isn't like a really technically apt title for this, but it's really a history of like Jews in the NBA, of which there are very few. And so the Torah is clearly sort of sending us a message that it's not really a science book. And I think people get into trouble, especially scientists, when they say silly things like, oh, well, you wouldn't, you know, like we know that the, the earth is, uh, you know, they thought the earth was created on the fourth day, but what does the day mean? Right. Exactly. And so my, my point is that you want to, I want to find things as a scientist, non-scientific reasons to believe in the in the truth in the Torah. Because right, because the the signature of God is truth, right? That's a famous, famous saying. Mm -hmm. On the same hand, you should also know how to answer an apicoros and know what to say when someone says something heretical, whether they're Jewish or not. You could be an atheist, Christian, you know, but uh and say something that's just foolish, right? Like the favorite thing that talk about slavery. Or they'll talk about you know killing your child, or they'll talk about you know the women of uh, of ill repute. But these are very simplistic. Like I always say, people like Lawrence Krauss stopped learning. He actually had a bar mitzvah, and that's when he stopped learning about Judaism. So I say to people like that, Lawrence, would you accept a math or physics proof from a twelve year old? Oh, absolutely not. Those they don't know anything. They need to get experience and wisdom and knowledge and pursuit. Well, why do you accept the refutation of the Torah's veracity? from you, a 12 year old version of you. Wow. And I, I think, I think the, 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 you know, kind of really long way of summarizing what, what you're, what you're saying, we, as scientists look for reasons not to believe, you know, Rabbi Kellerman has this book permission to believe, but I think right. if it's like a lot of what scientists are looking for are pretexts to reject. And in so doing, they've come up with a lot of kind of torturous models and theories that are fine scientifically, hundred percent kosher, you can investigate the multiverse where there's infinite numbers of you and me, except I'm on, you're on, you know, the host of into the demystifying and I'm on the host of into the, uh, into the, you know, Judaism podcast. <laughs> uh, there's literal infinite copies. So you can believe that that's fine scientifically, but when you start to use it as a reason 
to say that there is no ultimate meaning, there is no purpose in life, there's no reason to behave by any moral or civil or practical code other than Darwinism. Um, I think that's where scientists get into danger. And then we can get into the details and the quantum physics. I know your audience loves the quantum physics of the of the multiverse, but suffice it to say, it's really in a sense invented to answer the question, which is my mind is unanswerable. And that's why are we here? Mm-hmm. Science can't answer why questions. They can only answer how, what, when type questions. Rabbi Sachs actually is made that point. Question. Rabbi Sachs made that point when he was talking to Richard Dawkins. Uh, yeah, you know, we're, we're answering two different things. You know, it's not just like you said. Um, I actually want to point out we're we're kind of a Maimonidean quote unquote rationalist. I hate to use the term, but um, Rambam Maimonides says something very interesting about you know Aristotle because he talked about um the beginning and Aristotle believed obviously the the Greek philosophers believed in eternal universe, eternal right. world. And and Rambam said, I believe that the Torah says that there's a beginning, so therefore there's a beginning. However. If beyond a shadow of a doubt it's proven that Aristotle is correct, then we must start to look at the word Bereshit or the begin in the beginning as as a metaphor, which is an astounding statement by by Maimonides because it really shows that our approach to truth is so powerful that we would ha- we we even would take the Torah and say, hey, you know what, we got to look at this differently. So I think yeah. that I think that's an amazing part of our you know. Our whole religion, our, our our belief system, it's it's so powerful. And I want to also mention one more thing that you that you said um, regarding emunah. Um, emunah, for those listening, it means faith, but actually it's kind of like a Christian version of the word. Yes. Torah yeah. emunah actually means faithfulness, like loyalty. There mm-hmm. isn't a word for faith. There is no blind faith in the Torah. Um, right. you, see, you see that God is, um, you know, we have to know God. Right, but the paradox is he's the unknown knower. You can't right. know God. even Moses couldn't really know God. You can only see right. right? If I knew him, I'd be him. Exactly. But the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is to know Hashem, right? So so there's there therein lies the problem. But the pursuit of knowledge of God, understand looking for evidence, physical evidence, right? That's why Rambam says you have to study science and everything like that. So, you know, we're we very much, you know see eye to eye on this because I think it's such an important message for our audience. Yeah. And and I I think it's a unique message. So like my, my goal is, you know, I always say I'm a doctor, but I don't prescribe medication, but I, but I do prescribe ways to kind of like Amuna vitamins. I think there's millions and millions of Amuna vitamins and I give them to my kids. And one of the things I'll say is like, you know, I don't know if you guys have kids, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but like you see a rainbow, you see a cachet, you know, like my kid, if, if, if my kid asks me and I say, Oh, it's a miracle and it's beautiful. And and it is a miracle. Don't get me wrong. It is a miracle. But 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 to say that to stop there, it's a miracle, without saying no. It's actually caused by um, electromagnetic radiation interacting with dielectric materials that are called water molecules. That have this peculiar property. They act like these lenses that kind of bend things depending on their color, and it comes at a beautifully perfect angle. Uh, oh, what's color? What's light? Oh, those are photons. What's the matter? Protons. What are they made of? Quarks. And then keep going and going. Where were those made? That was made in the Big Bang. Um, and then what happened before that? Then you can say, only then should you say, we don't know. And maybe if you like, then that was God, right? In other words, don't short circuit. Do not stunt God's power too soon. Do not declare God and invoke God too early. Because it will actually potentially, I'm not always, but it could stunt the kind of intellectual grasp, not only of the child's aptitude as a scientist, which is important, 
because all children are born natural scientists, as you know, if you're parents, mm -hmm. but also it limits the power of God, right? You're saying like God only made the miracle, right? Which is amazing. But like, think of all the other miracles, I listed six other miracles that had to happen for that one miracle, quote unquote, to happen. Now, right. one of the reasons that appeals to me so much in that I didn't really mention when I, I said about Islam. So I think it's important. Etymology is very important. Um, when you look at Islam, it means in Arabic, it means to submit to God. And I always love the fact that Israel means to fight against God. Uh, and in fact, you know, one of my kids is studying, uh, you know, Vayi, uh, I think, um, and, and he's and he's talking, and we're also learning, you know, in the, this week's parsha about about Moses and, and and encountering God. And yeah, you can't know God, but so you must get to God. Like if if I show you a shadow on the wall. You could recognize, well, that could be some kind of a shape and maybe it's moving and maybe it's animated, maybe it's not. But you can get certain like glimmers or glimpses at it. But what I love is that that you don't stop. Like God is almost encouraging us not to, you know, um, not to have, I, I don't want to say not to have blind faith because I know my rabbi is going to listen to this and he and I argue about the rainbow thing I just said. Mm -hmm. um, and it's always in, in good, good, good faith and good humor. But I think there is there is something anathema to a scientist to say, oh, just stop at the miracle explanation. Uh, we always want to know more. But I think the humility of a scientist needs to say at a certain level, look, I don't know. God might be the, the real answer behind everything. God may not, uh, you know, behind this particular phenomenon. But to have the humility as a scientist is very hard to say, I don't know. And those are the most important words to say as a scientist, because otherwise you do have this almost hubristic attitude that you are like a all powerful omniscient deity, which is an easy trap to fall into. Right. And then you can fall down the trap of the God of the gaps. And I think that science and religion, they try to find truth just from from different angles. I think you just mentioned Rabbi Sachs. Yeah. I think you said that um, that science uh, takes things apart to see how they work and religion puts things together to see what they mean. And yeah. I think if we can keep that in mind, you know, we will uh, be able to do well in both. And, and, it's not, and just, it's not, just with regard to Maimonides, who, you know, obviously is a towering, you know, a tight, titanic figure in my life and in, in, in every, every you know, uh, devoted Jew's life. Um, at the same time, they were he was kind of battling a different battle at that time. As you said, he was kind of the Hellenistic, you know, approach, which must have been very awkward, right? <laughs> uh, because, you know, we have uh, Hanukkah, we have the, the story of the Hellenism, the attempted Hellenism, which wasn't really just to like kill Jews as a pogrom or something. It was really just to like have multiple gods, you know, like you can still have Hashem. It's fine. It's cool. But you got to take Poseidon, you know, whatever that, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the Greeks, so I learned something very recently when I was in Italy at a conference, uh, there were a tremendous number of Jews. Unfortunately, I was one of only two that were not, um, that were not messianic Jews. And we can get into that and what that did to me. Uh, but, uh, on the other, on the, uh, you know, for the other side of, of, of the fence, looking at the Greek influence, I wondered, for example, cause it was in Galileo's old hometown, my favorite hero of science in, in Florence. And I always wondered why did the church, the Catholic church, why do they care that Galileo was going against a pagan, which was Aristotle, right? Aristotle believed polytheistically, right? So why would they care that Galileo was overturning the works of a pagan? Like they should be cool. He's just showing the superiority of monotheism. And because Galileo is actually pretty devout. One of his daughters, both of his daughters were nuns, um, et cetera. So he was a good Catholic and he believed in God. Many quotes to support that. 
totally unambiguous, unlike Einstein, who had you know things on both sides of the fence. But while I was there, I learned um, from a Christian scholar that God actually, um, or that Christianity or the Catholic Church, the Pope, canonized Aristotle uh, after St. Thomas Aquinas in the 8th century or something like that, um, sort of brought to the attention of the, you know, kind of pre-enlightenment, uh, the works of Gal of Aristotle. So he became post facto a Christian. And therefore, it made it anathema for, you know, Galileo to challenge the word of a Christian saint. So I thought that was really fascinating. But I've never felt the need to really adhere to, you know, what the Catholic Church, you know, in other words, here's Maimonides Rambab confronting and trying to understand and interpret Aristotle. Well, Aristotle, actually, there was almost nothing that he got right about scientific facts, other than the fact that whales are mammals, literally. He thought heavier things fell faster than lighter things. He right. felt like there were four elements when there's 113. He felt like for a divinely inspired guy, he got a lot wrong. And so I've never really, like, if I could, uh, I feel like if I could sit down with Rambam and get him on my podcast after he goes on your podcast, you know, I'd say, why were you so obsessed with, with like reconciling the Torah with this guy who we know was wrong literally 99% of the time about, about things that mattered in terms of scientific empiricism, not, not logic. He was very good poetics. He's very good. Um, and even the scientific pre-scientific method. So anyway, that's a long way away of saying, I think we are still too influenced by, by non-Jews. I think as, as, uh, as Jews pursuing and worried and thinking about scientific matters where we might tend to be, oh, well, you know, we believe the universe is this old and the Torah says this. I think a lot of that comes from Christianity and yeah. a lot of these things, For sure. maybe we shouldn't feel so guilty about. Totally. Oh, yeah. We have enough to feel guilty about. We don't <laughs> That's right. Got yeah. Jewish mothers. Yeah. I mean, regarding also what you said about the Rambam, I mean, I think definitely Aristotle, the philosopher, had more of an influence. Rambam's Rambam was very openly saying, if if science is disproven, make it known. Not like, uh, I'm not married to these ideas and you shouldn't be either. Because in Judaism, we have Misora. Our Misora is Halakha. And Halakha is, you know, our tradition is Halakha. That cannot be changed. But matters of science in the world, you know, that that will change, that will evolve, that'll, you know, we can we can go back and forth on it and it's not a problem. 100%. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Yeah. And in fact, it's important to to make in math two plus two will never be changed it'll never be wrong in science einstein is wrong we know einstein is wrong right now we know that newton was more wrong and there's a famous saying by yitzhak asimov uh isaac asimov i named one of my sons after wow. a great writer thinker sci-fi yeah. author i love him and uh he said if you think the earth is flat you're wrong and if you think the earth is a sphere you're also wrong but you're less wrong. In other words, science is all about not prove it. You cannot prove that the earth is a sphere. It's actually not, not, there's no shape, unique shape that describes it, right? Where your house is could be like a millimeter too low. For, anyway, so it's never going to be possible, but you hope to encapsulate to higher and higher accuracy with finer and finer precision as time goes on. Unlike mathematics, Fermat's last theorem will never be unproven. Uh, you know, Pythagorean theorem will never be unproven. No one will ever come up, oh, I discovered there's on Venus inside of a wind cave, there's no, it's not possible. Mm. Um, and so I find it very interesting that um, you know, for example, I was mentioning these these Messianic Jews that I interacted with, four or five of them, including a professor at the Weizmann Institute, Tony Futterman in Israel, who was, you know, 
talk about like, you know, being on, uh, I don't want to say enemy ground, but <laughs> you know, he's a Jew for Jesus uh, is what that means. We used to call them that, uh, but now they call him Messianic Jew. And I interviewed all these guys, including one Professor James Tour of Rice University, who is perhaps the most, you know, passionate uh, Christian, but he was born Jewish. And, um, and he's got incredible, you know, scientific bona fides, far in excess of what I have. But I asked all these people, I said the very simple thing, do you ever doubt your faith? In, uh, and I asked Christians this too, not, not just Jews for Jesus, but I asked, you know, born from birth <laughs> uh, Christian, you ever doubt your faith? Because I, I doubt my faith all the time. I don't know about you guys, but I doubt it all the time. I mean, that's the whole question of theodicy. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. I don't know which is more annoying. Uh, mm -hmm. But but the, the point being, that's kind of like a hallmark. Like, otherwise God makes... And all these Messianic Jews to a, to a man said, no, I never doubt it. And and I couldn't I couldn't grasp it. I could not understand. It's a cognitive dissonance, you know? It's like, because you're a scientist. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Rabbi Sachs also, just to bring him up again, he said... Yeah. Uh, faith is the courage to live with uncertainty. That's what it's all about. It's the struggle. Right. Yeah. It's and, and you're telling me, like we say before, like Dennis Prager has become a good friend and a mentor in many ways to me. He says something like, you know, of course I'm going to see, God forbid, Hasbashalom, Kanaina, whatever, poo poo poo, kill the evil eye. Always do it, you know, make sure you always do that. Uh, the poo poo poos, always do that an odd number of times. Otherwise, it's a double negative. The Kanaina Hara scientists have recently discovered will come and get you if you just do poo poo. <laughs> Don't just do you're, you're talking to the wrong crowd over here. We're, we're rationalists. <laughs> we're, not, we're not into that stuff. That's that's a super. <laughs> okay, good. I'll that's tell you your horoscopes later. I, you guys want your horoscopes? I know you asked an astronomer on for a reason. Anyway, <laughs> but Dennis Prager says, "Look, I doubt all the time. You see, a, God forbid, a baby born with cancer dies. You're telling me you never see like a healthy baby, you know, born and think like that's a miracle. Like you just told me, atheist person, that you can't believe in God because you know." Uh, these bad things happen to good people or innocent people. But like, what about the 99 point? The reason that's aberrant is because it ne almost never happens, thankfully. So I, I find looking for ways to bolster the, as I said, these Amuna vitamins, there's so many of them and there's no need to be non-rational about them. I mean, there's, there's you know, millions and millions of ways if you want to see it. But I think a lot of scientists don't want to see it. They don't want to believe it. And I could say the same thing. I mean, I'm not perfect, right? I mean, you know, I always uh, you know, say, look, uh, Rabbi Orlovsky would, would always say things like, you know, don't look for a perfect man, ladies. You know, my wife got the last one. <laughs> I am not perfect by any means. But, but when you look at, you know, what you attempt to do and are you trying to, you know, evade the yoke of the mitzvot or are you trying to, you know, if you have to ask yourself, honestly, why am I behaving the way I am? And do an inventory on yourselves. But in so doing, you also have to give yourself credit for what you're doing, for the fact that you're doing behaviors, whether or not, and you guys admitted it, and I have, you know, call a kavod, and I admit it too, I doubt my faith all the time, you know, especially at like, you know, six in the morning, I don't want to get up and, and, you know, I have to take the kids to school or daven or whatever, but that's when the Yitzhahara strikes, right? But at the same time, overcoming that is, is, uh, being on the path, I should say, to try to always overcome it. I don't think you can ever believe in God, by the way. I don't even think like my rabbi believes in God. Like, in other words, not to say, you know, hospital, I'm saying bad could happen like Job, 
but but to say like belief in God is like is like being happy. Have you ever been happy? Yeah, I've been happy. And then like two seconds later, you know, my car got a ticket, right? So right. you can you can become happy, right? You can work on it's like it's like climbing a mountain. You never but you never get to the top of the mountain. You just get more and more because there's so much. Let me put it this way. Um, let's say you're perfectly happy. Let me say, let me ask you guys, how could I make your life, Ben? I'll just I'll just because we only have so much time. Ben, how could I double your happiness right now? How could I double your happiness? Um, by getting could I? by getting Dennis Prager, Ben Shapiro, <laughs> and Lex Friedman on my podcast. And <laughs> okay, well, that, as long as that's not forbidden by the laws of quantum mechanics, you know it could happen, right? So right. That, let's say that would double your happiness. Let me ask you, Godfrey, are, are you? Do you have kids? Are you married? I, I don't know. You do. Okay. So any parent, as I, and I brought this up to 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 Lex when I was on a show, is that any parent can think of not a way to become half as happy but to become infinitely impoverished, devoid, sorrowful, miserable, right? And I don't, I'm not even going to say it because I don't like to think about it. Um, so that means in, in statistical terms, there's an infinite number of ways to make yourself infinitely unhappy, right? Just all the different ways it could be unhappy, but there's only like one way, according to Ben, <laughs> that can make him twice as happy, right? So that tells you, like, it's much easier to be unhappy, and yet you're happy. I, I, you guys have a very happy countenances. I like that. I love your show. So the fact that you are means that you're resisting, defeating the entropic forces that are trying to make you unhappy and to make you not believe in God. Just like there's a million ways for you not to believe in God, right? But you don't. You do. You attempt and you pursue it. And I think that's the key thing. That's what, you know, if anything God is looking at with me, it's do find time, you know, to increase and bolster your approach to believing in God, not to believe in God. That's like check, you know, you can't have scientific proof, but you can approach it. The journey Love is it. the journey is the goal. That's right. hundred percent. So, so um, we only have a few more minutes. So maybe we can do the rest of the questions rapid fire and you can kind of give. Okay. Yeah. Let's do the rapid fire. So, okay. So um, I wanted to mention that the opening sentence of the Torah talks about God is not the world. The building blocks of creation and Bereshit are, you know, Shemaim, which is space um rx is matter and uh and uh Bereshit is time so from a scientific perspective how are space and time related and why is it such a fundamental question on one foot <laughs> on one foot let's say our space and time related yes so uh space and time are inter intimately intertwined in the same way that say let's just focus on space for a second so if, if you move Let's just say you move, right? You're moving through space and there's no absolute space, you know, coordinate system, right? I mean, where are you guys right now? Are you in New York or? Yeah, Great Neck, New York. Great Neck, New York. Okay, wonderful place. I'm from I'm from Stony Brook. So, okay. Nice. okay. So, um, so you're moving in space, but like the street system over there in Great Neck is not like a universal coordinate system that they're using over in Davos at the World Economic Forum, right? You, It's useless to you, right? But your local coordinate system, your move, let's say you move, um, you could also map onto some coordinate system in, in Switzerland, and you'd be moving respect to that, right? There's no universal coordinate system that describes all possible ways you can move in space. Mm. And that's also true of time, because there's no one fundamental observer. Let's leave Hashem out of it, just in scientific uh, terms. There's no universal coordinate system that can uh, uniformly account for all positions and all moments, which are called events. So we say that they kind of emerge, and they're locally descriptive, but there's no way to directly globally correlate them. Okay, great. Awesome. Okay, um, you had a great discussion with Dr. Avi Loeb at, about extraterrestrials. Um, a lot of people want to know about aliens, so 
Do you think that extraterrestrials exist? And if so, why have we not heard from them yet? So the same kind of laws apply, right? I have to be consistent. So if you don't have evidence for something, you can't believe in it, right? So people want to believe in it. They want to say there's so many stars with so many planets, which is true. There's probably a, a, over 10 billion planets that are just like the earth in some sense um, throughout the universe. But the question that Fermi asked many decades ago is where are they? If there's so many places for them to be, and I like to point out, as I described in, in my first book, in Losing the Nobel Prize, that's the you know South Pole in Antarctica over here, if you're watching on, on YouTube. That's the South Pole. That's the bottom of the world, right, from one coordinate system. It's totally frozen, totally flat. There, When I was there, I was like, I think I might have been the fattest person on the whole continent. In other words, there's so few people <laughs> on the continent. I'm a little bit. I can stand to lose some power. I had to bring some self-heating labriute kosher meals with me. It wasn't it wasn't so it wasn't so easy. But when you're there, you could be. I was the first person to put on tefillin. I was the only person putting wow. on tefillin at the South Pole. I was the only person who ever spun a dreidel at the South Pole. You know, it was like all these crazy things, right? But that's because there's so few people there. That's because I'm so great, right? Um, so, but if you ask the same question, like. Antarctica is one seventh of all the continents on earth. And yet there's no life there, right? You're not going to find a shul there. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to get a minion down there. Right. So just because there's a high probability, there's a lot of surface area and life could exist there doesn't mean life does. So I think there is, you know, almost no way to tell the difference between a probability of one in a trillion trillion that life does exist and actual, you know, zero chance for life. Of course, I would never say there's no life in the universe. It's clear that if there is life, it's not nearby to us in terms of its technological capabilities. In other words, it could be a dolphin on, you know, Proxima Centauri B's planet, but we never know about it because it's swimming through the water. Um, so from that standpoint, Avi and I differ in his kind of um, belief that the universe is fascinated and full of life. And it's kind of like the Garden of Eden everywhere. I, I think it's much less probable. I think there's almost no other life in the universe. And if there is... It might have come from the Earth <laughs> spreading out to the to the rest of the solar system and beyond. But again, we have no evidence for that either. So right now I have to say we don't think there is. There could be, but uh, currently we have no evidence for it. And one last quick question. Is math or mathematics something that we discover? Are they hard are they hardwired and built into the universe? Or we're we just using it to like kind of uh, create an understanding uh, of how to navigate the world? I think, you know, mathematics has been said is the greatest labor saving tool ever invented by human beings. The question that I usually get asked is, is it invented? Did Does math come from a mind or does it get discovered? Like you discover some new continent or something like that. And I think the answer is both. There are things that we discover where things come from the physical world, like calculus, good old Yitzhak Newton. Um, he discovered the laws of motion, laws of gravity, et cetera, et cetera. And then to describe them, he had to invent something called calculus, which, you know, is the bane of many, you know, 11th graders existence. So, um, although I happen to love it and find it quite beautiful. So uh, in that token, it was, it was kind of deduced scientifically from the physical world. On the other hand, there are things like integers, like you cannot give me, um, you cannot give me a triangle. There's just, there's no way, there's no physical instantiation. Triangles only exist in the human brain, as far as we know. There's no way, even a computer cannot accurately predict three zero-dimensional points. And yet, we can manipulate them. Um, the same thing about infinity. No computer can, can, can grasp what infinity is. The human brain does it all the time. Uh, so we can make approximations towards what mathematical objects are, by based on deductive extrapolation from what we see and observe in the physical world. But then there'll be some things that we can't ever 
encounter in the physical world because our senses of experience don't permit that high dimensional spaces even the fourth dimension we can only make analogies to so for all those reasons i say yeah math is is a tool it's also an almost artistic creation of sublime unparalleled beauty when you understand it the problem is a lot of people have like math phobia but i, I never see anybody have art phobia i'm looking at the painting behind you that, that looks like <laughs> that looks like a nice little work of art over there nobody's like oh don't ask me to look at art like i'm not an art person no they, i might not be able to play music but i can you know except on spotify but but i can appreciate music even though i can't play it same should be true about science and i wish that more people would do it because it is if God leaves clues, science and math are the probably most direct ways yeah. to take that, you know, Amuna penicillin and strengthen it. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Keating. We really thank appreciate you. making the time. We hope we can do this again. And uh, I'm going to send you a copy very shortly. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, guys. Call it thank you. Thank and you. I hope to do it again and maybe in person when I come out to the oh, East Coast yeah, again. Let us know. Amazing. Take care. Yeah. All right, guys. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys. Mm-hmm.